Happy Mother's Day indeed. Let us start with some good news. Ladies, we are grateful for you. If you are a lady here today, would you please stand and let us honor you? That means you. Thank you, ladies, for blessing our lives. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for showing us the right way, and thank you for showing us again. Thank you for the patience that you demonstrate when we've asked the 58th time, where is such and such in the refrigerator? Thank you for coming when we have lost something in the dryer yet again. Thank you for finding those socks that got away Thank you for being faithful to make sure that the laundry fairy comes and do, does the things that get the clothes from clean to dirty or dirty to clean. Thank you for what you do day in and day out. We are better for it. We are grateful for you today. We honor you. I know that for some of us, <clears throat> Mother's Day is a little bit painful too. Maybe there are hopes that didn't quite come true for you dreams that went unfulfilled. Maybe you're without your mother today and the loss of her is still painfully fresh. We remember you too. We honor you as well. And know this, our God, just as the video showed a moment ago, is faithful. Today is the sixth Mother's Day since my mom went home to be with the Lord. Hardly a day passes that I don't think about her. And if you are blessed by my service and ministry here as pastor, thank her. Because without her, I wouldn't have tried. I wouldn't have even gotten off the starting block. My mother saw something in me that was worth salvaging, I guess. She saw it in me before anybody else did. She believed that I wasn't the knucklehead that some of my instructors at school thought I was. Here's a case in point. Knowing her son as she did, she knew that he was smarter than he was giving himself credit for at school. His grades didn't reflect his intelligence. And so she devised a system that she would teach me states and capitals in a way that isn't necessarily that novel, but it is certainly one that worked for me. She knew that I knew every sporting team that ever set foot on a playing field or a court so she taught me states and capitals using those teams. Find Darren on the map where the Boston Celtics play. She wouldn't let me up until I did. Find Darren where the Los Angeles Lakers play. Find Darren where the Minnesota Vikings play. She knew that would draw enough interest, and indeed, that was a turning point in my life. You might say, well, Darren, you were probably only 10 or 11 years old exactly. She saw it first. So, Mom, we remember you today. We celebrate you, and not just mine, but all of them. Let's take a moment and pray a blessing over the ladies that are here and over the ones that are in heaven, too. Gracious Jesus, we thank you for mothers. We are here because of them in a very literal sense. But, Lord, we also remember their love for us not just what they gave us physically. We remember their faithfulness. We rejoice in it. And for those, Lord, who stood just a moment ago, we thank you especially for them. 
for their faithfulness to us, for their love for us, for their ministry in our homes and in our lives. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for them. And so today, Lord, as we celebrate mothers, let us do so with joy. Joy even if they are not with us anymore. Joy in the legacy they leave in our lives, and thank you, Lord Jesus, for it. Bless us in this time of study, Lord. We love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have your Bible, I hope you brought it with you. Philippians chapter 2, my friend Clark read it so well. You know, this isn't normally how we would unpack this passage on Mother's Day, but it seemed eminently appropriate for today. I want to say thank you for showing unity at home. That's the essence of what Paul is offering us here in Philippians chapter 2. Let's jump right in, right there at verses 1 and 2. Christ-like unity is our calling not uniformity. You know, when my friend Jeff Wash walked in this morning wearing his gray suit, I laughed to myself as if somebody might have called he and I and said, hey, wear two suits tomorrow that are uniform. Well, they may not be entirely so, but at least they are in color. That's a symbol of unity in some respects, but it is definitely a unity in diversity. If we tried to change jackets, it would not be the same. You would say, that one doesn't look quite right on you, Darren, or on Jeff. But that's exactly what we are called to be together. Let me read it for you in verses 1 and 2 again. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, then here's what you're to do. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Unity is the missing piece. Of course there's comfort in love. Of course there's encouragement. Of course there's participation in the Spirit. Of course there's affection and sympathy. And because all of these pieces are already on the table, then we can say conclusively, what is it that will bind them together? It's unity. Unity must be chosen, for it not, will not be found otherwise. Unity must be sought. It is the common thing that draws all these other pieces toward a center. And what brings us together? Being of the same mind, having the same love, being in one accord and of one mind in Christ. This, friends, is what Jesus does for us. He draws us toward one another. Unity is the missing piece. And I want to say this with clarity. Unity doesn't demand uniformity. You don't have to be identical to be together. And thank God for that. Look around at the others who are seated around you, and you'll notice that we are none too the same. Even if your twin is sitting with you, they are not completely identical to you. They share commonalities, but uniformity is not God's strong suit. Unity is. Now, one of the real challenges that we face as Christians is demanding uniformity. We like uniformity in many respects. After all, if we throw a party and we invite you to come, what's one of the first questions you're going to ask? Who else is coming? I don't want to be there by myself. I don't want to be the only one. Uniformity draws us toward commonality. That's what we do with our friends in the military. 
We want them to lose some of their individualism, so we dress them all alike. Uniqueness, though, demands that we take that unity, even if we are dressed alike, and we embrace it and harness it for the right purpose, which is to glorify Christ. All of us can find our way to God's goodness and be united in Christ-likeness by finding unity in Christ. Unity, uniformity rather, is pressure from without to fit a prescribed pattern. Uniformity means look this way and you'll be received. Unity, however, is a chosen direction where you link arms with those around you and you link hearts for a common purpose. That means that disagreements can't be corrected by correcting behavior. They must be corrected by correcting hearts. This is the essence of why Paul begins where he does. I want to remind you, Philippians is a thank you letter. It's not a correction letter like 1 Corinthians. It's not a theological letter like Romans. It is a thank you letter. And so he's writing to say, this is what we want you to look like. This is how we want you to be. And I want you to see where he starts in chapter 2. He starts with unity. I want you to take this home with you. Finding unity means looking for it. I won't find it if I don't. And secondly, when division comes, don't settle for uniformity when unity is available. Now, he doesn't stop where we left it off at verse 2. He takes it up to the next level, and that's where we'll go next. Christ-like humility is our chief virtue. Verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. It's as if Paul is saying in verse 3 that leaving something out adds something else. Do nothing, he says. Put that part aside in favor of something else. And what is it that I'm supposed to do nothing with? I'm supposed to do nothing with selfish ambition or conceit. You can tell right now he did not write this to 21st century America. If we are anything, we are selfish and conceited. It's sort of our birthright. We think the world revolves around us. And who better, right? If there's only one Dr. Pepper, it should be mine. If there's only one chocolate chip cookie, it should be mine. But Paul calls me to something more than just my humanity. He calls me to leave something off, to leave something behind, and that is selfish ambition and conceit. These are the things I'm to shed on my journey. And how can I do that? Humility. Learning to be like Jesus means embracing humility. Humility is not something that we necessarily like to find. Embracing humility is a little like hugging a porcupine. It's best done gently, if at all. And yet that's exactly what Paul commands us to. Learning to do this will take time and purposeful energy. I'll have to go seek it. But it happens when I look for it. It happens when I choose 
to do nothing from selfish ambition. It happens when I look out for the needs of others instead of myself. It happens when I advance the kingdom of the king instead of my own. It happens when I settle my heart not merely on gathering my desires, my possessions, my preferences, but those of Christ the King and the other citizens around me. This doesn't mean it'll be warmly received. It also doesn't mean that I won't be abused in the process. Count on being abused. Count on finding the pull of others towards their preferred ends. Count on living in a fallen world, compelling me to my own desires. And yet, I'm called to think differently than the culture in which I live. That's why Paul in Romans 12 calls me to be transformed. Andrew Murray is a writer from the early 20th century that I've always enjoyed reading. He said this, the humble person isn't someone of, who thinks of himself poorly. Rather, he just doesn't think of himself at all. The transformation of Christ has nothing to do with him, and he knows it. It has everything to do with Jesus, and he knows that too. So when he submits himself to Christ in gratitude and love, he's simply responding to what Jesus has already done. I want to give you a couple of things to take home there. One, if I'm accused of being humble, is there enough evidence to convict me? I hope so. Here's another thing. Seeking Christ means I must deny myself. I must put Jesus first, just like he called me to in Mark chapter 8, Luke chapter 9, Matthew chapter 16. If anyone would come after me, he said, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now we come to the heart of the passage, verses 5 to 8. And it calls us to a specific course of action. Christ-like thinking is to be our compass. Compass. It's that old-fashioned thing we used before we had GPS. Do you remember those? GPS. They can lead us down dark alleys. Did you read the story not long ago? about the British fellow who was following his GPS. And he noticed something looked a little amiss. The road that he was following didn't seem to take him where it thought it should go. And then, then an amazing thing happened. Although the GPS showed the road continuing on and that, that it had more to it, the road actually broke off and fell over a cliff. The GPS said otherwise. Common sense dictated something else. That's what we must use. Christ-centered common sense to set him as our compass. Hear it in verses 5 through 8 one more time. Have this mind among yourselves, who, which is in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human nature, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It is as if I will have to recreate myself, and indeed I will. I have to recreate myself in Jesus' likeness. That's what is called for here. Some of your translations say 
have the attitude of Christ within your own heart and mind, would Jesus think about whatever it is the same way that I do? Uh, that's what I want to get to. That's what I'm praying for. Through my salvation, a process called sanctification started. And that sanctification process will take me from now until I arrive home in heaven to be completed. But it doesn't mean that I shouldn't keep going with it. By focusing on where I want to go instead of merely where I am, it gives me the chance to set my course on Christ's chart, on his path, not merely my own. It allows me to use him as my standard, not someone else. We are so busy saying, well, at least I'm doing better than they are, whoever they is. I'm not called to be better than somebody else. I'm called to be like Christ. Thus, recreating myself in Jesus' image and his likeness means that I must follow his example, which Christ showed me how to do this with his example. Verses 5 to 8 are a passage we call by its Greek name, kenosis. We call this the kenosis passage. Kenosis is a Greek word that means emptying. Emptying. It means that Christ emptied himself, see it there in verse 7, emptied himself of some measure of his divinity in order that he might take up our humanity. And in taking on our humanity, he was still in some measure fully God. It is believed these verses were an early Christian hymn, the core of the apple of theology, and indeed it still should be. You see, Jesus showed us how to do this, not because it was easy, but because it was worth it. And now he calls us to do the same. Can I just pause right here and say, for the ladies in my life, they've shown me much about this, and it's one of the reasons that I wanted to use this passage today. Billy Graham said, the true test of a Christian is the way they live at home. You'll know what they believe by the way they live with their family. For the ladies in my life, my mother and my wife, I've learned a lot about emptying myself by watching them. It doesn't mean it's easy. Quite frankly, it's harder than it sounds. But here's some good news. Following Jesus will mean a, a lonely walk, but Jesus is walking with us. Jesus set the example for us to walk. In other words, we don't go alone. We don't go alone. Here's another element too that Jesus didn't ask me to go just with him. He sent people to walk with me. You, church family, you get the chance to do that in each other's lives. That's no small thing. Don't take it as a small thing. It is a joy that God has given us that privilege of emptying ourselves together. Now, we won't always get it right. But as long as we've said this is the path we're going to walk on, then th that's the path we're going to go on. Let's wrap ourselves up. Christ-centered submission 
is our goal. We want to, like Jesus, recognize that we're headed somewhere. We want to recognize that Christ is taking us somewhere. See it in verses 9 to 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What does it mean? It means just this, and with this we'll close. Christ's supremacy. You can choose it or it'll choose you. Everyone, according to Revelation 19 and 20, as you spent a year with me in, Everyone will bow at the throne of Christ. Everyone. The only difference between those within Christ and those outside of Christ are whether we choose it in this life. Choose it in this life and we gain eternal life to spend it with Christ in heaven. Reject it in this life, still bow before Jesus, but find yourself separated from him for all eternity. This, friends, is where we're headed. So if we know this is the ultimate goal, then let us move that direction. I want to tell you one final quick story. We were in South Dakota a couple of years ago. We were uh, at Mount Rushmore. We decided we would go back toward the Badlands, back toward the east. So we did. And when we started that way, we started seeing signs for Waldrop. Now, if you've been in that part of the world, maybe you've seen those signs too. We saw one and then another, and then another, and then another, and then it became kind of comical. It was only about 100 miles from where we had started to where Waldrop was, but in that 100 miles, we saw more than 70 signs for Waldrop. By the time we saw the 50th, all three of us said, oh, we got to stop. There's no way we can miss this. We feel like we would be somehow wrong not to stop there. Now, let me just save you the trouble, all right? It is the biggest tourist trap, maybe in all of the United States. Trinkets and junk, it is a Stuckies and Buckies put together, friends, I want to tell you. It is a sight to behold. We should be setting a path that directs others, but not to Waldrop, to Jesus, and showing them the way. I wonder if that's what you're doing today. I want to give you the opportunity to do so. Maybe you need to talk to somebody about your relationship with Jesus. I'll be waiting for you right down here. Perhaps you need to come to this altar and say, Lord, there's something heavy on my heart about my own family, about a friend's family, about someone who is sick, about someone who is in trouble. This is a good place to pray. We invite you to use it for such. Maybe you need to come down here and say, I need a church family, Darren. I've been trying to walk this path alone when God has called me to unity. Come down and let's talk about that. This is the day that you can choose to do something fresh in your walk with Christ. Let's pray together. Today, Lord Jesus, we praise you. We praise you for loving us and for making us yours. 
We glorify you, Lord Jesus, that you emptied yourself. For if you had not, we would have no hope at all. We could never reach up high enough to you, so you reached down to us. And so in this moment of invitation, Lord, we respond to you. I pray, Lord, for those who are struggling, hurting, and broken right now. Will you do your work in each of our lives? And I pray, Lord, for those who need to respond. Let them do so today, right here and right now. We give this invitation time to you, Lord Jesus. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.